something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Today I had the opportunity to chat with Patty McCord, who's the former chief talent officer at Netflix, worked and developed the Netflix Culture Code, I think the seminal work on corporate culture today. She's an advisor for, well, us here at HubSpot, as well as Warby Parker and Harry's, simply hired a big commerce and tons of awesome companies. And she's out there trying to change the world of HR. And she tells it to you like it is. We're going to explore interviewing, building great teams, how you deal with, deal with stuff when the times get hard. Let's jump into our chat with Patty. I'm Kit Bodner, and this is The Growth Show. I think kind of where I was looking to start today was just around building a great team. You know, in the early days back, you know, when Netflix was a startup, back when you were getting um, at the very early steps of building a great team, how did you guys think about it? I mean, yeah. you, don't, you, don't, you don't create a culture overnight. You don't, you know, come up with a list of job recs overnight. How does that all happen? You know, when we kind of figured it out early on, it was easy to build on it over time. So, you know, I, I grew up as a real HR person, and I talked all the HR speak, which I, I don't know how to do anymore, so don't ask <laughs> me about empowerment. Um, <laughs> I, I no mean, empowerment I really, here. Um, but here's here's the Netflix story. But let me tell you some other ones that are attached to it. Yeah. So the Netflix story was we had hired a bunch of people. We weren't really sure what the business model was. We spent a bunch of VC money sort of exploring around trying to figure out what our business was going to be. And then in 2000, we were going to go public and we were going to be rich. We were going to have private planes and blah. <laughs> and the bubble burst and it didn't happen and we ran out of money. And the bankers pulled the IPO, the Barry economy went to hell, September 11th happened, and we thought we were going to die. You know, we thought the business was over yeah. because we were very capital intensive because we had to buy DVDs and stamps and envelopes. And so we cut back on everything that we could and we realized that in order to survive, and I'm not talking about thrive, I'm talking survive exist uh, uh, exist right we laid off a third of the company and we focused our business only on one thing which was renting dvds by mail mm -hmm. and using the subscription service and it was a really you know wasn't a very big company at the time but still a third of the employees you know one two three one two three right it's bad and um what happened was uh, that Christmas DVD players dropped to $99 and everybody got one. And uh, everybody stayed home because they were scared or out of work <laughs> and, and watched movies and our business took off. And But we were still private and we were – so now, you know, because we're growing so rapidly and we're being so successful, we're burning money even faster. So we had to spend – literally spend all the money that we were earning on making the business better by buying more product, by, by hiring more shipping and receiving people. And I couldn't really hire anybody in the corporate headquarters. And we were doing twice as much work with a third as many people and it was more fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, I, seriously, we were getting 
twice as much work done. And I thought, what the hell is going on? So I kind of started my rest of my life study about more anthropologically looking at what's the difference between, you know, a small team and a medium team and a large team and a global team? How do they operate? What are the what are the constants and what are the things that change in them? And here's what I discovered that's remained true for me about the constants. The constants are that if you have incredible focus and you have a really shared sense of what your metrics are, meaning not only what are you trying to achieve, what success going to look like, but also like what does quality look like? Mm-hmm. If it not just if it's great, but if it's amazing and it's and it feels great, mostly for our customers. What will be different than that's happening now? And that clarity around vision and success and metrics and quality aligned with time allows you to put together amazing teams. So when I talk about it, I say, you know, the most important thing to having a great team is to know what your what greatness is. <laughs> right yeah. and if you if you look at greatness and you have time attached to it that's one thing that startups often don't do because it's hard right yeah. so when you're when you're a little company you're like we're going to be great someday and it can mean you know next thursday or in 20 years i mean you don't really know because you're making shit up right but the more you can focus on maybe six month goals the more you can get teams really aligned and if you have that clarity then the people on the team can make good decisions and you want to have the clarity be clear enough so that people can go should i do this or this oh wait a minute in six months we're trying to achieve this this is what goodness looks like it's going to make our customers happy oh that's easy yeah, and it comes down to that idea of focus that you were talking about. You know, you have to have a fixed amount of things you're trying to accomplish and accomplish them in a very fixed goal. You know, we, we operate here on, at HubSpot on a monthly cadence where everybody has kind of clear yeah. monthly goals, but then we have kind of our annual plan and the, the big things that we're working towards that we want to accomplish that year. Yeah. And it's really, you know, it keeps everybody working from the same page and helps everybody prioritize, which is a, a big part of all of this. Yeah. Okay. So then another tool to help you is a feedback loop because when you work backwards from those kind of goals and as they shift and as you start to achieve them, then the makeup your, of your team could change, right? So yeah. one of the things about, let's say, annual goals is at the end of the year, if you're really successful, you've achieved them. <laughs> and and then the next year you might have a completely different set of goals with a t- completely different set of time frames with a completely different set of skill sets and the team you have might not be the right one right yeah. and so sometimes we start with the team and say oh i can see all the amazing things that this group of people can do and then you reach for that instead of saying what are the amazing things the business could do and work your way backwards to make sure you have the right team because if you have the wrong team that's when you get all those weird psychological political things that happen like people don't have high morale and they're not engaged and they're not empowered she's spewing a HR speak now. <laughs> and, and the reason why you try and fix that is that you may have the wrong team. So I got I have to share a story with you because I love my story. Uh, I got to do a talk at the Bell Center in Montreal, Canada with a guy named um, Scotty Bowman, who was the former coach, winningest coach of the National Hockey League. Yes. Ever. 
okay? The Bell Center is where the Stanley Cup is played. Now, I'm an American. I don't play hockey. I don't really know what I've gotten myself into, to be honest <laughs> with you. And I and I go to Montreal, and it's like, you know, February or something. Oh. Like snowing like crazy. I, what was I thinking? I don't know. But I figure out a way to get from my hotel to the Bell Center going underground so I don't have to go out in the snow. So... I get there and I'm down below and I meet Scotty Bowman, who's a lovely 70 year old man. And we're talking about his grandkids and about golf. And he points his finger up above us and he says, you know, Patty, we're under the ice. <laughs> right? That's where the winds happen. And, you know, I kind of get a chill. I'm like, well, this is really fun. So I get ready to go up on stage and I don't know. Can I, it's like I didn't realize it was a hockey stadium. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't realize so, it was going to be massive, huh? <laughs> So I walk up and there's like three spotlights and there's this announcer and then my face is on the jumbotron. Oh. It's like, oh my God, who is, oh geez. And, but I'm trying to be cool, right? So Obviously. they introduce me and everybody claps politely. You know, it's like, I don't know, 10,000 people in the audience or something. And I go sit on my little couch waiting for the thing. And Scott, Scotty walks up. It's thunderous. It's standing ovation. <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody in the audience is trying to turn around backwards and get a selfie with him in the background because he's God. So <laughs> I'm like, geez, I don't even know what to do. So the moderator says, Mr. Bowman, you've coached so many of the greats in hockey. You've won so many games. You know, feedback must be really important. How do you do it? And he said, well, we play an 80-game season, and we're pretty clear what the objective is, and that's to win. Uh, but I get together with each player every 10 games, and we sit down, and we run all the statistics on that particular player and his position and his teammates. He does a self-evaluation. I do an evaluation of them. And then I sometimes ask the other coaches and the other team members, and we put together a plan on how to have optimal performance for the next 10 games. So the moderator says to me, you know, Patty, you're pretty, you're pretty well known for hating the annual performance review. <laughs> like, yeah, that's probably true. And he goes, but I haven't ever heard you say what you would do instead. And I said, what he said. <laughs> <laughs> the right answer. Yeah, because, you know, when we talk about teams... I don't know why we don't, you know, we use best practices. We use this term best practices, like, and now best practices, I God, I don't know, whatever you guys do at HubSpot or whatever they do at Google or whatever the cool company is currently doing, instead of really examining winning teams. And I, since I've left and I've been consulting now, I've gotten to do a lot of conversations with people like Scotty Bowman, who really, you know, put together teams that win. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a ton to learn from them. I, I met this other guy who is the Scotty Bowman of the Irish games in Dublin. Ooh. And, and, uh, and I don't know if you know, they have like their own weird games. Yeah, they have hurling, they yeah, have hurling. GAA. Uh, like, I, I, we have an office in Dublin. I love the Irish sports. Yeah, Fantastic yeah, too, sports over there. So this guy, I don't remember his name, but you could look him up and he's like the guy in Ireland. And, I, and he says, you know, I look for talent. I look for skills. I look for hard workers. I look for people who love the games. And by God, I look for spirit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like that's that's really kind of it, right? Yeah. And the thing that I think that I've learned a lot from them that I intuitively knew from all my years in business is 
teams form and reform all the time. Constantly. Constantly. And that's, and in fact, particularly in our internet world, the idea that people collaborate and that they work cross-functionally and that teams are not, you know, that team in marketing and that team in sales and that team in engineering, because we, most of us serve customers who could give it flying, whatever, how we're yeah. organized. Right. They just want a great product. And so that fluidity of teams and fluidity of working, I think, is a real exciting place for us to go in the next 10 years or so. I, I, I honestly think we should throw out pretty much everything we've done for the last two decades and start over. I, I generally agree with you. I think because you just said something interesting that the customers don't care how we're organized. Yet m so many businesses, I feel like, impose their structure, impose their go-to-market model on their prospects, on their customers. How do we stop doing that? You know, we use the incredible tools that we have at our disposal. You know, some of it is, you know, if you're clear about what you're trying to do and you know what success looks like, then you can question all of your methodologies. For example, I'll be contrarian because I always am. <laughs> like, I think sales comp is ridiculous personally. <laughs> I mean, uh, it just... In what ways? The way Oh, it's too complicated. There's too much negotiation. We're often wrong. And, you know, I say to my sales friends, I'm like, so like, what if you had like a code of ethics on how you deal with your customers and you have some very clear uh, descriptors of how we behave together and how we treat each other. And then you just pay the people who sell more and more money. <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, forget all the spiffs and the na na na, -na because you know, when you get it wrong, you got to renegotiate. I swear to God, I think a third of a sales cycle is spent renegotiating comp. <laughs> I think you're, I think you're probably right. Actually. You guys, does it really? Does it really? Does it take all these people to figure it out? Like, you know, so sell more, make more. I don't know. But you then know? where would all then where would all the finance and sales ops people work? You know, if if you simplified okay, it, like that's so, that's so that the where they spend all their I'm, time. The reason I'm bringing up this example is that when I push hard on very senior salespeople that I incredibly respect, when I dig, 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 dig into why they do the things the way they do, they will always, especially after cocktails, say, that's the way I came up. Mm -hmm. I paid my dues. This is how it works. You don't understand. Salespeople can only be motivated by the carrot. Right. And if you don't give them stretch goals, then they won't stretch. And I'm like, well, that works for everybody. Why is it different for sales? And then why is it when you get hit your stretch goals, we get to go to, you know, got them liquored up. But that's a whole different story. But I imagine you have some some stories around that, but we'll save those for another don't day. We all, right? That's true. Don't, don't we all? I mean, that's the other one. It's like, well, how come this group of people gets to act like they're 18 until they're 52? I'm just wondering. That's <laughs> but But my point is. I think one of the reasons that we get trapped is we get trapped in the success of the things we've always done. And the beautiful thing about the businesses we have, what you and I are talking about is how do we know we're doing the right thing for our customers or our prospects? And the answer is data. Right. In the old days, when you were in retail, you had to wait until everybody turned in their receipts on Friday and rolled it up to corporate who rolled it over to finance, who gave a report on what sold and what sold last week. Right. That's yeah. the old retail model. Now you can go, hey, wow, you know, <laughs> those T-shirts are selling really well in Atlanta this weekend. It's, you, it's what, amazing. 
It's amazing. So the beautiful thing about that empirical data is you don't have to second guess what customers want. You can see it. So one of the things at Netflix that was part of our DNA was A-B testing. And, you know, the idea that anybody in the company could have any idea that might have a significant impact on the customer, but it had to be expressed with uh, like the hypothetical theory, yeah. right? I believe that that if we do X, it'll result in Y by this time frame, and how we'll measure it is this, and the improvement will be this. And then you just test it. So, you know, the thing is, we, if we're not sure we're right, then we should be as not sure, as sure that we might be wrong. Patty, why are we okay doing that in marketing, in software development, but we're not okay doing that in our organizations and in our teams? You know, it doesn't seem like people are willing to test things when it comes to teams, team structure, organizations, comp like you were talking about. Yeah. Why is that? I think it's a combination of things. One of them is we went through a very long period in employment where our relationship with our employees was one of fear and suspicion. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, if we don't do this, they're going to sue us. Right. It's not logical and it doesn't make any sense and it's kind of cruel. But like performance improvement plans, <laughs> somebody who does who can't, you know, who doesn't want to do the job and doesn't have the skills to do the job. But we go through this three month farce of improving their performance when that's not the issue. Right. right. Because if, if we don't, they won't. They'll sue us. Right. So that turned out to be like a whole lot of nothing in my opinion. It's like, you know, if you don't want people to sue you, don't piss them off. <laughs> Treat really. people like human beings, right? And tell them the truth, mm -hmm. right? So instead of saying, we're going to put you on a three-month performance improvement plan, which is designed to ensure that you fail, we could have a conversation that says, pretty sure you're going to fail with the circumstances we're at here. And that would suck for you, and that would suck for us. Here's three months pay. Let's work on your next job. Right. So part of it is we don't have a lot of practical models on how to do things differently. And partly, I personally think mm -hmm. it's because we've developed this language around teams and companies and compensation and organization that is so far from reality that people just don't understand it anymore. So let's say compensation. You know, I talk a lot to people about um, pay inequality. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, here's the dilemma with most compensation systems in most companies. If you don't address pay inequality at higher, then you're screwed forever. It's true. Right? If you, come, yeah. if you start under market, and even in the best compensation systems, you know, you're a big raise. Let's say you're coming 20% under, and you get the maximum raise of anybody in the company. You get 18%. Well, now you only suck by 2%. <laughs> yeah, it's still not, and, not and equal. And it compounds. Yeah. Right? So it's not pay isn't mark to market like the rest of the world is. So the, the thing is, my bigger answer is, it seems too big to fix it all at once. And so what my advice is to attack or look at, I mean, some of the things that you're doing in your companies is perfectly reasonable and perfectly wonderful for your companies and your employees. But... It's still okay to question it. L like my story about Scotty Bowman. Let's say we believe that feedback uh, might create better performance for individuals. 
Let's, let's just say we bought that. Yeah, right? it seems like a reasonable it, it thing. Like a reasonable yeah. Thing. Now we might go and research and find that actually nobody's ever done an empirical direct correlation, but we pretty much know that to be true. And we come up with the annual performance review. We'd never do that as a product. No. Right. You know, if you looked at it like a product, it's like, well, that would be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, everybody does it. Because right? yeah, it's it's the way it's the way that it's happened, and it's uh, the overcomplication of of something that just doesn't need to exist in its current form. Maybe I mean maybe it needs to be complicated in a different way. I mean maybe yeah. it needs to be an iPhone app. I mean I'm throwing shit out here, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like, but you said it earlier. Like, what would we do with all those people in all of those roles? And that's part of what we do. Right. We, we protect the institutions of the departments that we have. So you said earlier, why can we do it in marketing? Why can we do it in uh, software engineering? And it's partly because those are the parts of our company that tend to push the boundaries of what's, of what's doable and find success quickly and iterate and reiterate and reiterate. Mm -hmm. it's, it's become the heartbeat, the breathing system of those kinds of organizations. And, and my advice is just apply that same system to all of your organizations. Yeah, you, you have to, you know, I'm, I'm reading the Phil Knight uh, memoir right now from Knight, Phil Knight who started Nike. And, you know, his whole thing in there is, you evolve, you grow, or you die. You know, you you have to continue yeah. to improve, continue to iterate, and that's. Yeah. I think that's that, that's what you're saying here. And it's, you know, as some of your listeners are startups, and usually when I engage with a startup, I'm like, you, you know how this ends, right? There's only <laughs> one of three possibilities: you get bigger, you get smaller, you get eaten. <laughs> it's true. Okay, smaller is death, so you know. Right. So when you start hand wringing about it's such a big company now and everybody doesn't know anybody and it didn't be it isn't like it used to be, that nostalgia that happens at all companies yeah. every couple of years, right? I, I'm like, look for that. Watch for nostalgia. And then you want to go back to those people who are, you know, reminiscing, who are wistfully remembering how it used to be and say, you know why it's different now? Why? Because we're successful. Yeah. Because otherwise we wouldn't be here. <laughs> but we're going to wouldn't be here. And you know what it's going to look like tomorrow? Not what it looks like today. I think healthy teams are teams that look at change as like a credible opportunity and are really eager, eager to do that, right? Instead of the worrying mm. that things aren't the way they used to be. You know, speaking of healthy teams, how how do you deal with it from a team perspective when when shit hits the fan you had to lay off a third of the workforce we talked about that earlier what what do teams need to do when times get tough have you ever been in one of those situations uh i have yeah yeah and how did it turn out when you reflect on it uh i think what tends to happen is the the leader's job is to be transparent and communicate and and what's going on and why things are happening. And when that has happened, I think the team normally rallies around yep. uh, and comes together and, and traditionally stronger because of that. I was, I, see, I'm going to let you say it because I don't have to tell you it, <laughs> right? Because if all of us look back on times at work where we feel like we and our the people we work with accomplished amazing stuff, like where you go, damn, we're good, it was never easy. No. 
right? It's, it's, you know, it is the fact of, you know, that we are humans, <laughs> that sometimes the hard stuff, the impossible stuff, the it can't be done stuff is the stuff that spurs us on and makes us great. And so I would say that we spend way too much time worrying about morale in those situations instead of worrying about, all right, let's get her done. You know, I, I travel all over the country now and I, um, and I work, you know, I'm a California startup kind of gal, but I, I love it. And I always say there's sort of these uh, regional differences in mm -hmm. that, the, that mentality. And, you know, in Texas, it's like when I go to Austin, they're like, get her done. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and when I'm in Manhattan, they're like, if we can make it there, we, you know, it's like, and I don't know what Boston is. You'll have to give me the. Uh, Boston that, just grinds through it, man. They're just like, oh, yeah, obviously we'll do this. Like, yeah, we'll do this. Right. And, yeah. you know, it's just like one foot in front of the other that New England can-do attitude. The puritanical right? drive. Whatever it is, you know, we all know it to be real. And one of the, you know, I've I've watched the, the cycle go up and down so many times. And, and I'm actually looking forward to the slow deflation of this current tech bubble. Yep. Because I read the other day in a blog that the most... In the last two years, the fastest growing title for startup HR is chief happiness officer. Ooh. Ooh. And you know, that just makes me want to. Yeah, you're, you know, you're not a happiness officer. I'm not kinda, a happiness kind of person. And I, I hope that there aren't really aren't that many of them because they will be unemployed in hard times. <laughs> because yeah, that, you know, it's the, there's no correlation between happiness and success. Yeah, that's not a wartime job. That's... Yeah, and I would say that in war and peacetime, which is a bad metaphor, I don't yeah, like meta I military know. metaphors, but let's say it's success and not success. You know, I tell everybody, they're like, well, how do we measure whether or not we're doing well on the people side? I'm like, well, you measure the business, <laughs> right? So a happy, unsuccessful company is not successful. Right. right now, and a and a tumultuous, horrible, you know, people are unhappy company that is successful in spite of itself won't endure. Yeah, and so let's talk about that. I think company culture is a topic uh, du jour, you know, right now. And mm -hmm. you you created the Netflix culture code. This kind of, I think, the original document kind of to define corporate culture and company culture. You've got a lot of people out there listening who are just like. I don't know what should I have a company culture? What should that company culture be? What does that what does that even mean? Like, well, what does company culture look like today? Well, let me unpack the Netflix culture deck for you, which Please. no one ever does, right? And yeah. I always get these bylines that says she created the document that Sheryl Sandberg called the most important. So you can say that when you intro me. But <laughs> fine, um, fine. so here's how we did it. Uh, after the layoff, when things were great, we decided that it would be a cool idea to start writing down what was so great, mm -hmm. right? And so we wrote down, and if you go back and look at the Netflix culture deck, first we wrote down the behaviors that we wanted to see in each other. I mentioned a couple of them, culture and courage and honesty, and I mean, courage and honesty and transparency and those kind of things. So we wrote those down, and I didn't want to write down values as esoteric, you know, pie in the sky values. I want to be like, you know, if you're lying, I get to call you on it. 
right? If you're politicking, I get to say, that's not how we do it and give you another way. So that's the first thing we did. Then after the, the story I told you, we wrote this chapter called High Performance because we realized that, that fully formed adults who were really into the business, who were pretty you know, self-regulating, were the kinds of people that were more successful. So we wrote, and, and we, I say we because I mean we, you know, it'd be like the CEO of the company and I would brainstorm and then we'd talk to our other execs about it and then we'd roll it out with the rest of the company. And if somebody would come to me and say, you know, I don't like what we said on slide 14, I would say, do you not like the intention or do you, do you not like the words? Well, I think the words create the wrong intention. I'm like, okay, rewrite it and send it to me. I'll change it. It's PowerPoint. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't have to hire somebody to go, all right, tear down the marble. We got to redo that one. Right? So honestly, we wrote it as an internal document for onboarding mm -hmm. until about 2008. We started working on it in 1999. So one thing for people to understand is that you don't create a culture on day one. You already have a culture. <laughs> and usually on day one to day 370, it's mostly just like, get her done. Right? <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like the culture is just work hard, right? Work hard, try hard, get some, you know, make a lot of mistakes so that you can figure out what doesn't work. And so because cultures evolve, you know, the, the important part I think that we did differently at Netflix was we paid attention to it. And when it started kind of going the way we didn't like it, we we're like, whoa, whoa, what is this, right? Oh, We've hired a bunch of people who've come in and they're kind of political and that's a bad thing. You know, how do we stop that? And then I, my job was to say, well, how do I, let's take part of the Netflix culture day. If we believe we have fully formed adults who are high performing employees, who have a lot of freedom and tons of responsibility, what should my time off policy be? Should I have one? What should the expense reporting policy be? Everybody else has one. That's a best practice, right? And so if I looked at everything that I literally did operationally inside of the company through the lens of what we said we wanted the culture to be, then I could make decisions about when we needed policy, if we needed policy, or if we could say, hey, I'm going to trust you to make the right decision. And every time... I chose, we're going to trust you to make the right decision because you're an adult who wants to be here, does a great job, who cares. Everyone around me said, you're insane. This is crazy. You'll get sued. All hell will break <laughs> loose. You know, the world as you know it will come to a bitter end. And I would stand up in front of the employees and say, we're going to try something different. This is what everybody's told me will happen. If it looks like it's going to start to happen, we'll just go back and do what everybody else did. But let's try Right. And the thing is, after you build it over time and and people start working in a different way, then that's culture. It's not what you write down on the culture deck. You know, Darmesh and I, when I met Darmesh Shah, we had months and months of these discussions. Right. I'm like, right. I love you know, I love that graphic, Darmesh. I mean, how cute is that? Is that what you do? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, yours is way prettier than ours. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, but, you know, the prettiness 
is that it that you walk by and you can see it in action. Yeah. So that's the thing about it's not the deck, it's not the declarations, it's what you do. You know, when I meet with, I just met with a, a great young CEO of a company I'm crazy about last week, and I said to him, you know the job of leading your company as long as your CEO is the is your job as long as your CEO. He's like, excuse me, I'm like, all yours, baby. <laughs> Everything. It's not what you say, it's what you do. Are you on time to meetings? Because if you're not on time to meetings, the Nobody else is, right? Time, right? And if you don't, and if your team says, we believe in candor and everybody's telling secrets, then you've just made, A, you've lied. B, you've, um, you're not walking the talk. And C, worst of all, the worst sin is now the employees are cynical. Right? Can oh, you I, overcome that? Yeah, you just got to call people on it. And, they have, and if they can't come around to the right way of operating, then they should go to a company where politics matters. And there's a lot of companies like that. I'm not, you know, it works for some people. But there are not a lot of good companies like that, I'd argue. It depends on what you call good. Yeah, that's fair. Right? You know, so some people measure good by uh, how long they've been in existence. You know, I, I did a talk at a very large company. I'm learning to say no to these things, but I didn't. <laughs> uh, be, because I, I can already see that this played well. Yeah, because it was a place I really wanted to go. <laughs> uh, and afterwards, I did a breakout session and somebody in the breakout session, this is executives from this very large global company, huge, huge, huge. She said, well, you know, we're a 150-year-old company and we're quite, uh, uh, we're quite profitable. We're very good at what we do. I think we know what to do. And, you know, to be honest with you, what the stuff that you're talking about doesn't make any sense. And I'm not sure. I don't really understand why you're here. I'm like, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's cocktail hour, so we could just call it a day and leave. <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly. Because really, honestly, I, I don't know why either. And I'm like, and sounds like you don't want to be here. So why don't you go gin and tonic, order one for me. <laughs> and a couple of the people in the room are like, no, don't go. Yep. You know, that's they, they wanted some hope. They wanted some hope and they wanted to think about how, because they knew that what they had done to keep them successful would keep them at a moderate level of success in the things that they were doing until somebody else had figured out how to do it differently. And in some, in some organizations that might be 20, 30 years. And so for those of us that are in organizations where it's like, yeah, that's our DNA, then success has a different, success is different than stability. And in some companies, stability equals success. That's, I think that's very fascinating that success is, uh, is different from stability. Uh, yeah, it's been really interesting for me because I didn't know this when I li lived under a rock. <laughs> you lived in, uh, in a very different world than a lot of other people. I did, and I never went outside. I mean, I was too busy, you know, working on our business. Mm -hmm. and, and in the last four years since I've been out in the world, you know, I'm on the one hand, I'm really excited about the companies that we have and the products we're making. And the, it's just, it's such an exciting time to be alive. And I'm really excited about people who want to create organizations and companies that want to do things differently. I mean, that energy is real. And on the other hand, I see, you know, some fabulous startup that's going to make it that's, you know, five years in and now all of a sudden they bring in all this process. Well. You're going to kill it. Don't kill it. <laughs> but they won't kill it. They'll just handicap it. 
Yeah. It's like, you They'll know, slow down. I'm sorry, you're 40. You can't wear that outfit anymore. <laughs> My kids saying to me, you know, uh, are you going to buy that? You're a mom now. <laughs> they don't do it anymore. But, you know, there's a point where it's like, shoot, we got to be grownups. Do we have to do all this stuff? And I just, uh, my message is maybe, but maybe not. Yeah. And I think, I think your message is maybe, maybe not, but maybe but do what works for you and don't just sit on it once you decide to do something. Continue, mm-hmm. to, continue to evolve it. Yeah. Just like the product. Exactly. Just like the company, right? I mean, so you, we all know how to do what I'm professing that we do. It's it's just we don't. So, you know, so examine. <laughs> Simple, isn't it? Well, examine what is the inertia. What is the fear, right? What are you, and, and there's inertia, there's fear, and to be honest with you, it's easier. Yep. It's just a lot easier to, you know, when, when I worked in companies where we did acquisitions and mergers, we would, I would take their employee handbook and our employee handbook and I would smoosh them together. You know, I was bleeding edge, so I'd do it online (laughs) and I would, and I would only have the policies as many policies that pissed off the fewest people. But every time we did an acquisition, there would be more. Yep. And more and more and more. And pretty soon, you know, the bureaucracy had permeated the entirety of both organizations. So we took their bureaucracy and our bureaucracy, and I'd try and squish them to make a leaner bureaucracy. But to be honest, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So that's, but it seemed easier than starting over every time because there were so many other things to do. It's like, Mm. is this, that's the other thing is like, well, how important is this, right? It's much more important to get our uh, development teams aligned. It's much more important to figure out, you know, how to serve the customer. And those things are all right. But we don't stop and go, well, maybe we could just suspend this and see what we really need. You know what? Here's another thing. Sometimes the way to innovate is just to stop. <laughs> just throw it away. Start you know? anew. Or don't. Yeah. Or just not, don't do it even, anymore. Not, not even start anew. It's like maybe we just don't need to do that. If we didn't do that, you know, the annual performance review, I talked to this huge corporation. I'm like, you know, you shut down your company for five weeks to do this. And they're like, well, you know, I'm like, just so you know, I work with a lot of startups that are competitors to yours and they're not going to catch you now, but they're going to catch you eventually. And you know why? They work 12 months a year. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Comes down to uh, your ability to move and move quickly, but also like not waste time on on things like that. It's it's madness. that's my per- that's my perspective. It's not everybody's perspective. I'm you know here in my voice, I'm learning to be humble. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken a little a, while, but you're, you're working on it, bit, right? I mean, I try not to get mad about it because I'm not there. You know, I don't understand. So, so it's shoes. like audiences like for this podcast is who I like to talk to. It's like yes, you can. Yeah, you can do you it. Sh- you do you do it every day. It's not any different than doing it every day. I mean, I know that, yes, these the, the annual performance review was invented in 1964. <laughs> I don't know when it was. It's like it's our job as employees to constantly be on the self journey of figuring out what do we love to do? What are we great at doing? What engages us? Where do we want to 
belong, right? And not what makes us happy, right? Yeah. Because what, what makes you happy at work is when you go home at night and go, damn, I'm good. Yeah, we, we, we made something happen. You know, we made something happen, yeah. And, I th- and that's universal. That's not a tech thing. No, it's a human thing. It's a human thing, yeah. So sometimes if you go home night after night after night and go, my boss is an idiot. They don't appreciate me. Nobody cares about what I know how to do. They're not utilizing me to my fullest extent. This isn't fair. It's possible you're in the wrong spot. Yeah. And the and right? wrong spots happen. But let's, yeah. let's, let's talk about that. Talk about it. We haven't talked about interviewing. We've talked a lot about people and people management. But how do you make sure you, you, you get the right person in the right spot? Same, same methodology, right? So here's what we do wrong. We create, um, oh, you talked earlier, you said, use the word requisitions, the ticket. Mm-hmm. Uh, now here's the real truth because I started out in recruiting and I've been in HR my whole life. Here's the truth of how you get a requisition approved. You either describe somebody who left that you wish they hadn't. You describe a person that's amazing and has superpowers that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Or you write whatever it's going to take to get it approved. Right. And it's a laundry list of skills and experience. I would like five plus years of progressive experience in software development on Ruby on Rails. Right. Instead of saying, wow, in six months, if this team was amazing and they were accomplishing this incredible stuff, what would we need to be doing differently than what we're doing now? Okay, if we're doing things differently, then what would people need to know how to do that nobody on the team knows how to do? And if we had somebody that knew how to do that, what kind of background would they have so that they would know how to do that? Okay, now who do we got? Ooh, well, we have, we have three, you know, we have a bunch of great people. So instead of hiring a bunch more great people who are just like these great people, why don't we fill in our deltas, right? Why don't we go find some people that know how to do these things that we don't really know how to do? And oh, by the way, know how to do them so well that we can actually accomplish this in six months. Because if I look at my team, I'm going to be like, they could all learn how to do this. Can they do it in six months? Doubtful. (laughs) (laughs) Doubtful, right? So then when you go to recruit and you go to hire, you don't go to look for somebody who ticks off all the skills and experience. You look for somebody who can solve that problem. And when you look at it that way, you change your mental model. Right. So I talk to young teams and they're like, well, you know, we need to talk to you because we're going to go from 150 to 300 people next year. And I said, is that because you plan to do twice as much work? Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm like, so you just doubled the number? (laughs) Well, yeah. I'm like, that just means you'll have more people. You might actually get less work done if you just if you just duplicate the team that you have. Well, how do you grow your team and not lose efficiency? You have to figure out what it is you're trying to do first. And then you build the team to do that. Right? So how you do it in terms of practical recruiting, you never stop. Yep. You never stop and it's not HR's job. No. It's it's everybody's job to recruit. I mean, I here's a story I tell a lot, you can uh, but I'll tell it again. <laughs> when I was a recruiter, I was a good recruiter, tech recruiter here in the Silicon Valley. And I mostly recruited uh, engineers. And so I would go to whatever ethnic restaurant was the popular geek spot de jour. And um, in these little restaurants, they still do them in some restaurants. They have a fishbowl up on the counter and you put your business card in and you get a free lunch. Yep. Right. So I'd take the fishbowl and I'd go to the darkest corner and I'd just dump out all the cards and start copying down phone numbers. 
<laughs> and I tell people, and the waitress would come over and go, oh, is that okay? I'm like, sure, bring me pad thai. It's good, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, and I would write as fast as I could because we didn't even have phones where I could take pictures of it back then. And I tell people, now we have LinkedIn. Now we have Hired.com. Now we have, right, now we have our Facebook. Now we have, you know, uh, all of our social networks. The people that we want to hire are in our networks now. Yep. Right. So everybody should be talking to other people all the time about what they love to do, the problems they like to solve, the opportunities that you have. And I over and over I interviewed people where I'm like, not now, but stay in touch. <laughs> you know, yeah. so you, you want to and if everybody thinks it's their job to bring great people into the organization because great people in the organization makes the organization uh, great, <laughs> which makes, you know, the customers have your business successful, then you don't have, all, have to have all these incentive programs to make people refer people. Yeah, what happens, what happens when you get a great person and you don't have an opening? Do you... you, A, you know they're a great person and you didn't know that before, right? Yep. And you have a, a relationship with that person and you're connected in some way. And so whatever methodology it takes for you to remember them, but you will, right? Mm -hmm. You'll come up with a problem. You're like, oh, God, we don't have anybody. Wait a minute. Remember that person we talked to last year from that? I wonder if they'd know anybody. And, you know, you just, yeah. it's just. I mean, you just, we talk about, that's how you do it in sales. That's, it's, again, it's the same. You use a product methodology and you say, okay. I, I talked to a group of CEOs. I love CEO forums. I do them all the time. And somebody says, I don't think you understand how hard it is to find great technical talent in San Francisco because, you know, there's more demand than there is supply and we just can't do it. And, and I said, well, just, it's easy. Hire women for a year, the person said. You don't understand qualified women don't cross my desk and I said what qualified men are walking across your desk <laughs> <laughs> like must be getting pretty crowded around seriously <laughs> and aren't you an open you know like that so well, they're walking across everybody's desk this is a problem she goes you know what I mean HR doesn't give me anybody and I said what do you have 150 people in your organization okay so go out with a pad of paper or your cell phone or whatever and ask every single person who's the best woman they've ever worked with that's it. Just ask that question. And trust me, everybody will have a name. And then systematically interview them. Every one of them. Right? 150 people. You can do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's 150 days or 150 weeks. I don't care. Just do it. And trust me, you'll hire somebody. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's sad that, you know, often people don't want to do those things, which is the It's hard the work. It's, it's hard. None, right, of, so none of this is easy. But, you know, none, none of any of it's easy. No. Again, so how we got in this conversation was you asked me, how do we get stuck here? Because the way we always do it is seems easier. Yeah. But it's the longer term, just like the product. It's easier until you look around and you go, oh, shit. We hired the wrong team. And now what? And then it gets really hard really quickly. Uh-huh. Two things happen. You either have to undo it which of course you're going to put off till the very last minute because it feels bad, or you're going to lower your expectations for what you can accomplish. Yep. That's, and, and then you wonder why you don't have good morale. 
all a very interconnected series of events. It, it is. Out. It's a holistic system. It's, <laughs> a whole, it's a whole thing. This is fun. Thanks so much, Patty. I appreciate it took for taking the time to chat with us today i know you're swamped so thanks for chatting and talking to all this people stuff with us for a little bit you bet awesome yeah thanks patty thanks for listening to our show as always we would love to hear your feedback tell us what you think by leaving a review on itunes 